We continue on in Job, coming to chapter 16. Reading the entirety of that chapter, Job 16. Once again, God's infallible and inspired word given to us and for us. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job chapter 16. God's word. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth. And the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I bear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He's made me desolate all my, He has made desolate all my company. He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He's worn me, he has torn me in his wrath and uh, hated me. He has gashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They've struck me insolently on the cheek. They amass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease. And he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as a target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood. Let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. He who testifies for me is on high. My friends, scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So how many personalities do you have Now, no, this is not a multiple personality disorder question. Sadly, a few do suffer from this real malady, but thankfully most of us do not. Yet practically, tongue-in-cheek, we often talk this way with respect to our moods. Yes, we all have moods, and they can make us act quite differently. There is normal mom and mad mom, who's a whole other animal. You have grumpy dad and silly dad who are like night and day. 
Yes, some of our deeper moods thoroughly affect our personality. While we are piercingly sad, we see no colors. When everything is wrong and to be shouted out is when a dark anger settles over us. When we're ecstatically happy, we laugh at problems as if a child's toy. Sometimes it's not that easy to distinguish between a mood and a personality. Well, if we are like this, it shouldn't surprise us that God can be as well in whose image we are fashioned. Now, sure, God is one. He's pure and simple, without shadow of change, no parts or passions. And yet God often relates to us as his creations according to one of his attributes or by a single mood. In scripture, God can show his love or his wrath, his power or his gentleness, his terror or his warm embrace. By his different moods, the Lord shows his disposition toward us. Well, as Job continues to lament his affliction, he is caught between two mysterious sides of God. So Eliphaz just laid into Job pretty good. Remember, he charged Job with breaking the fear of the Lord, being arrogant, and being loathsome. Then, after describing in detail the miserable fate of the wicked, according to the retribution principle, he dropped the, you are the man. Job fits the pattern of the wicked sinner to a T. Eliphaz imparted no hope or in any encouragement. Eliphaz merely buried Job in sin and left him there. If Eliphaz talked this way to you, how would you respond? Maybe someone has dressed you down in a similar manner. How did you react? Well, Job gets the stage back to field Eliphaz's hard-hit line drive. Eliphaz got nasty with Job. How will he react, uh, or will he react in kind? Well, his first word is, I heard. Eliphaz, as you'll remember, suffered from poor listing, so Job counters to highlight that he is listening carefully to them. Indeed, he has heard many such things before. Now, as his friends, they act like they are sharing groundbreaking news for Job. But in reality, it's all old news. The friends are just repeating the same stale stereotypes, vapid cliches, and greeting card platitudes. Thus, Job gives them a review. He says, you are all miserable comforters. The friends, as you'll remember, came with the explicit purpose to comfort Job. Therapy and consolation was the mantle they took upon themselves. And yet they are doing a miserable job. Though by this phrase, Job more so means they administer misery and trouble. A counselor is supposed to give you comfort, but these three therapists inflict pain and anxiety. In fact, the word for miserable is the same one that Eliphaz used for trouble in 1535. He said the wicked conceive trouble, and Job counters, you comfort me with trouble. They only make Job feel worse, more anxious, and troubled. 
they amplify misery and not decrease it. One of the basic laws of a counselor is do no harm. But Eliphaz and his buddies are doing precisely this. They're harming Job. And to give an example, Job paraphrases them in verse 3. Now, these are not Job's words, but theirs. For Bildad charged Job with windy words. Zophar said Job's blabbing needed to stop. And Eliphaz rebuked him for having a windy knowledge. They considered Job uh, to be sick as he kept on answering. In short, verse 3 is the friends telling Job to shut up. This is their counsel. Just shut up and put a cork in it, will you? Now, typically, when it comes to grief, we say, talk it out. Don't bottle up your emotions, but express your emotions in words. But the friends of Job do the opposite. You need to end your wind, your harmful speech. Job, though, is not in the, of the mind to zip it. Rather, he will speak, and just as they're talking, so will he. Thus, Job theoretically ponders a role reversal. If you were in my place, if you sat on my ash heap, then I could be your counselor. If you all were suffering as I am, this is what I would say to you. Thus, Job lays out two options of what he could say. First, he could join words against you and shake his head at them. This is a negative, as head-shaking is a gesture of scorn. He could rebuke and critique them. Or secondly, Job would encourage them. Sympathy on his lips would reduce their pain. That is, if Job counseled them, he would actually decrease their misery and encourage their souls. Job would talk their pain away like a proper and effective therapist. He would not be cruel to them as they have been to him. However, even though his words would have this positive effect on his friends, he cannot do the same for himself. Verse 6, he says, if, if Job talks, his pain is not assuaged. If Job holds back, that is, if he's quiet, his pain still does not leave him. To speak or not to speak doesn't change Job's misery. His words or his silence provides no self-help for him. Job could relieve his friends. He would be a strong dose of Advil for them. But he's useless towards himself. He can help others, but he cannot help himself. You can practically taste the despair of Job's frustration here. He's gripped by the despondency of hopelessness. You've likely felt a measure of this. Something's wrong with you, and you want to fix it so bad. You do anything. You change your lifestyle, your diet, do surgery, take whatever medicine, exercise around the clock. But nothing helps. Your hopelessness becomes worse than the pain. Despair hardly gets gloomier. 
And this is the torment of Job. Though being useless doesn't keep Job from trying. And so now he launches into an extensive lament. From verse 7 through verse 17, Job raises an old-fashioned lament. Now in the Psalms, laments are the most common psalms, and the psalmist can be can bewail just about anything. Sickness, sin, enemies, oppression, unanswered prayers, death, and so on. So what does Job lament and bewail? Well, he moans about God being his enemy. He labels God as my adversary. And as his foe, God has treated Job without mercy. The list of what God has done to Job is almost too much to even read. He begins in verse 7. God wore him out. He drained in weary, drained and weary Job down to a dry piece of straw. Job's company has, has uh, been desolated by God. That is, all his family and friends abandoned Job. Like a ghost town, Job is empty of loved ones. God further shriveled Job into a raisin. He's a bag of skin with bones in it. And Job's gaunt and emaciated body is a witness against him? That is just to look at his scrawny frame, you know he did something wrong. His his own ugly appearance and cadaverous body is common, well-known evidence that he's cursed. But being a lonely skeleton is not enough for God. Next, God's wrath tore at Job like a hungry predator. God's snout mauled Job like a bear. As a lion, he attacked and gnashed his teeth at Job. And God, as adversary, literally sharpened his eyes at Job. The Lord looked daggers at him. You know the dagger stare when you get it. And so Job feels the stabbing gaze of God. Of course, when God is your enemy, he uses other foes against you as well. Thus God has given Job into the cruel hands of the wicked. The gangs of criminals open their mouths at Job. They slap him across the cheek with scorn and encircle him. A pack of wolves are having their way with Job. Indeed, God has broken Job, snapped him in two as a twig. He grabbed Job by the scruff of the neck and shook him just like a dog shakes a squirrel to kill it. But even this is not enough for God. Next, he sets up the broken Job as a target, and the archers use him for target practice. Their arrows pierce their kidneys and bile leaks upon the ground. The Lord breaches the skin of Job, breach upon breach, and then God charges like a warrior. This pictures Job and his skin like a walled city. The city wall falls and soldiers sprint inside to plunder and destroy, which God has done to Job's very body. This running like a warrior, though, also counters something said in 1526. There Eliphaz said the wicked run at God, which was an accusation at Job. So Job bewails 
that God charged him as a marine, not the other way around. In fact, Job, in fact, Job's skin is so worn away that he has sewn sackcloth onto his flesh. The grieving fabric of sackcloth is Job's new skin graft. Finally, his face is burnt red from unceasing crying, and his eyes are painted with the mascara of the shadow of death. When death sets in to the living, their eyes sink in and become ringed with black. And so is Job. And this is Job's lament of being treated as an enemy by God himself. It's truly horrifying and and terrifying. And yet, there's more to it than this. In this heartbreaking lament, Job makes about eight confirmed allusions to the book of Lamentations and around another 24 possible echoes to Lamentations. And the book of Lamentations is a lament of God's day of the Lord judgment as the ultimate curse of the covenant when God stood as an enemy. This, then, is Job bewailing that he is suffering the same as Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations. He is groaning and sobbing under the Lord's full and ferocious anger. This is the blackness of his pain, the depth of his grief, the intensity of his agony. No wonder the placid platitudes of his friends only inflict him with more misery and trouble. And yet, there's something here that surpasses even the book of Lamentations. Verse 17, But my hands hold no violence. My prayer is pure. Jerusalem, she was as guilty as sin ten times over. She deserved all she got and more. But Job has done no violence. He's committed no crimes or felonies. He broke no covenantal law. And his prayer is pure. His petition to know why God has attacked him, his plea to be vindicated, and his lament for mercy, these are all unstained. He is mauled by God, not as the guilty, but as the innocent. He suffers as being a friend of God, even as the Lord is an adversary. Personal sin in no way explains his broken body leaking bile. And yet Job is not going to give up. He will not throw in the towel on God, and thus he utters a new request. He asks the earth not to cover his blood, and may his cry find no resting place to silence it. Now for the earth to cover blood... And to quiet a lament means that the person's death has been dealt with. The death was justified or paid for or appeased. But for the blood to remain a stain on the soil, for the wailing blood to continue to be heard, this means that the death needs to be answered for. An explanation has yet to be given for the account of the death whether it was right or wrong, 
timely or untimely, justified or unjustified. The point is not a protest of injustice per se, but it is a request for an explanation. Thus, when the bloody earth cries out, it's always heard by heaven. Stained soil raises its voice to be heard on high. Therefore, Job changes his tune quite suddenly from sorrowful despair to confidence. He gives a voice of strong assurance. As the earth raises his cry to heaven like smoke, he does not doubt that he has a witness in heaven. My witness is in heaven, he says. My testifier is on the heights. And the heavenly witness would be Job's advocate to explain his suffering and to win him a vindication that he was not suffering for sin. This is a pretty bold assertion for the distraught Job. So then where does it come from and who is this heavenly witness? Well, he goes on. Next, he says, my friends are my scoffers. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar only scorn and reproach him. They console him with misery. Thus, they're no help. Job has no advocates on the earth. Thus, he says next, my eyes pour out tears to God. He weeps for, uh, to God for aid and help. Of course, God is the preeminent heavenly one. Since praying to angels has no place in scripture, this aligns the heavenly witness with God. This also fits with the other places in the Bible where blood cries out to God. Finally, Job says, may he argue the case for a man with God. That is, he asked the heavenly witness to arbitrate for God, for Job with the Lord. Just as a man will advocate for a friend, may the heavenly witness be Job's friend to advocate for him. Job then lines up here the heavenly witness with God and with a friend. Who is the heavenly witness? It is God himself being a friend. And this friendly God will arbitrate with God as the enemy for Job. Job puts next to each other two aspects or moods of God. The first mood was the scary wrath of God to tear and maul Job. The second mood is the friendly advocate who hears the blood cries on earth, Job's. This is God advocating with God for Job. And this is no weird second personality, but this is the complex way God interacts with us. Indeed, Job shows his fidelity to the Lord here tremendously. Typically, when we suffer under God as enemy, we quickly run to thoughts that God is unjust, wicked, or not good. We deny the attributes of God's goodness, justice, and love. This is what the world does. If if God can maul us like a bear, then he is evil. But Job will not go there. His devotion to the Lord doesn't waver. Instead, he laments that his agony from the enemy hands of God, and he affirms God as heavenly friend 
to advocate for him. God as enemy will not make Job deny God as friend and mediator. His loyalty to God holds together God as foe and God as friend. How these work together may be mysterious. Job wants to know why God is acting so hostile to him. He pleads to be vindicated as upright under his affliction. He gives full voice to his lamentation here of being broken and torn. But Job will not renounce God as friend. This is what the evil one bargained that Job would do. The accuser bet that if God, if God was an enemy to Job, then Job would cease to be loyal and curse God. Yet here is Job besting the evil one. He affirms and finds confidence in the friendly attributes of God to advocate for him. He appeals to God's mercy to deal with God's justice. He takes confidence in the mediation of God to explain why God is being his enemy. There is, though, one, there is, though, some urgency in this prayer for help. As he says, finally, fewer the moments he has left. It will not be long now, and he will go down the path of no return. His heavenly witness needs to take take up his case soon before it's too late. God, his friend, must help him before God, his foe, kills him. Again, Job focuses on the need to be vindicated and restored in this life. Intercession must happen now in life before death comes, for then it will be too late. Nevertheless, as Job here, Job here sets, sets next, to his, next to each other, God as foe and God as friend, he puts his finger on a Trinitarian truth for our faith. God as foe is the father as judge punishing us without mercy, alone in our sin. While God is heavenly advocate, is Christ as our heavenly, our friendly mediator to win for us mercy and grace. Now, of course, the Father is just as loving and gracious to us as the Son. For God so loved us, he gave his only begotten Son to die for us. Likewise, the Son can be wrathful, He is the judge of all the world, and he will come in the wrath of the Lamb. The Father and Son are, of course, equal in power and glory. They are both the same in just wrath and gracious love. Yet, a common expression of the work of of redemption between the Father and the Son is often presented as God as judge and Christ as mediator. Jesus provided his blood to appease the wrath of the Father against us. And part of the certainty of Christ's intercession for us is that he's now in heaven. Jesus came down to take on our humanity and die, but he ascended on high and is now at the right hand for you. Christ is your heavenly advocate who constantly makes intercession for you with God. This means, in Job's own way, 
putting together the two moods of God, Job sees an aspect of the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. His confidence is in his, in, in his heavenly witness is an affirmation of Christ. Sure, it's a bit foggy and undeveloped, but it nevertheless rings forth with a profound truth. Namely, that our God can be our friend at the same time he can be our foe. The Son intercedes with the Father for us, and God is both just and merciful. He's both wrathful and loving. Even though this can be hard for us to understand at times, we cannot deny either. We should not let one attribute of God move us to renounce another attribute of God. And this is wisdom for us as we live under God's providence in this cursed world. We don't have it as bad as Job, thank God, but providence often seems um, like an enemy to us. We can get sick, lose our job, get abandoned by friends, and for no good reason. You go to the doctor to get better, and they only make you worse, and then as as soon as you get the hefty hospital bill, your hot water heater breaks, your tire goes flat, and your mom has to go on hospice. Kicking you while you are down seems like a speciality, of providence at times. Right before a fancy picture, you get a nasty rash on your face and you look like the plague. At times, providence make us feel like God is our enemy. And then, feeling far from God, friends can come up to us and berate us again with vapid platitudes and cruel counsels. Everything happens for a reason, You must have done something wrong. You just need to pray more, for God only wants for you your best life now. And the world scoffs. If God would allow you to suffer, then he is not good or loving. There is no God. But the loyalty of Job is wisdom for us in exactly such situations. If providence is hostile, this in no way undermines God's friendship with you. God can be both friend and foe at the same time. The transcendent and infinite God can deal with us in many ways all at once. Suffering and affliction in no way means God does not love you. Indeed, we have been given a more robust and certain confidence than Job because Christ and his gospel has been revealed to us and sealed upon us by the Spirit. In the gospel, we hear there is now no condemnation. If God justifies, who can condemn? No one. We know the name of our heavenly witness, the highest of all names. Jesus Christ. And as our high priest, Jesus makes constant mediation for grace and mercy on your behalf. Likewise, united to our suffering Savior, we are told that suffering and affliction is us being made like our Savior. The painful providences are the Lord's agents of sanctification and beautification. 
and especially sweet is that Christ tells us that our sufferings are short. They are temporary, for Christ has in store for us the restoration and bliss of heaven. Indeed, on that last day, on the day of our resurrection, Jesus assures you that he himself will dry your last tear. Many are the tears and pains now in our lives. And we can and we should express them as lamentations to God, just as Job did here. But our weeping tarries only for this age, while the healing and joy of Christ last for eternity. Besides, even though providence can be hostile at times, it can also be richly generous towards us. We should be grateful for all the good that comes from providence as well. Therefore, armed with the wisdom and confidence of Job, let us keep our eyes upon heaven, upon Christ, who is our life and to whom we belong forever. For he is our present help always and our comfort even in darks, life's darkest moments. And all for his glory. Amen. Let's pray.